Well, happy Easter to you. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. And I want to welcome you to the very first week of a series that we're calling, Dude, Where's My Jesus? Uh, you might ask, what in the world inspires a sermon series like that? Well, the, the reality is, is that while we laugh at that clip, it's really not too far from the truth, is it? Like, like we all have these perceptions of Jesus and the Jesus that we like best, right? Uh, my favorite is when he's like, I love to picture Jesus with, uh, with eagle's wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner, right? I mean, that just, that, that cracks me up because it's not too far from the truth. We have perceptions of Jesus. So what we're going to do during this series is we're going to look at the perceptions that we tend to have of who Jesus is. And we're going to look at scripture and begin to ask the question, is the perception that we have of Jesus actually true to scripture and who Jesus really is? Now, for example, uh, when we come to the Christmas season every year and we begin thinking about tiny infant Jesus, right? Uh, it, we, we tend to have a really easy time liking the Christmas Jesus. Do you know what I mean, right? I mean, the Christmas Jesus is, uh, he's born humbly, and we have this sort of like mysterious and inspiring story about shepherds following a star and, and wise men bringing gifts. And, and it's all a bit mysterious, but it's all very inspiring. You know what I'm talking about. And, and, and Christmas carols sort of create this picture or this perception of Jesus uh, as this humbly, uh, you know, this, this cuddly Jesus, right? For example, away in a manger, uh, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing, or as my daughter Jaden says, the cattle are lowly. And then the poor baby wakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, right? We have this picture of the baby Jesus that doesn't cry and doesn't poop, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and, so we're, and then we look at the life that Jesus led after he was this infant and he was a great teacher and his teachings can be helpful for all of us. And it's like, how can you not like this guy, right? He performs miracles. He does all these things. I mean, how can you not like this guy? But then we come to the Easter Jesus. And the Easter Jesus is just a little bit more difficult to really get a handle on and really begin to like and love. Because when we come to the Christmas Jesus, we don't really have to do anything with Christmas Jesus. But when we start talking about the resurrected Christ, all of a sudden it becomes much more difficult. Because now... We've got to come to a decision of what in the world do you do with a resurrected Christ, right? The Easter Jesus calls us to a decision because people are supposed to stay dead, right? Science, and we love science. Science just doesn't jive with the Easter Jesus. Do you hear me, right? And so, and so we're just kind of like, it isn't logical, and yet it calls us for a decision. You can't just, you can't just like the Easter Jesus. You've got to decide what you're going to do with him. And so we have these sort of two overarching stories of who Jesus is, right? We have the Christmas Jesus, cute, cuddly, inspiring story. It's cute. 
It makes us feel good. It inspires us to be generous and loving and kind. Because after all, isn't that what the Christmas season is all about, right? And so we, we tell this sort of mysterious and inspiring story. And then it really inspires us to, to love better, to give more, to be more generous and kind. But if we aren't careful... If we aren't careful, the Christmas Jesus can sort of operate in our lives the same way that a date movie does. Some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about, right? A date movie is we go there and we get inspired and Matthew McConaughey is chasing someone. He's chasing the bus. He's riding the scooter. He's running through the airport. Come on, don't tell me you haven't seen Matthew McConaughey movies. Right At the end of every single one of those, he's chasing someone through something, right? And he's looking all cute with his chiseled self and his blonde hair. Don't get me started. He's a good-looking man, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and you're like, it's inspiring. And we come to the end of it, and we're like, we look at our significant other, and we say, baby, I am not going to take you for granted any longer, right? And we want to love better. And we're sort of inspired by these, these date movies like... Uh, man, can I just be honest and upfront with you today? I, I like date movies. Uh, the Notebook, that is a good movie, right? And as soon as I say that, there is some dude here that like, you're going to find me in the courtyard and you're going to beat me up after service, right? He's like, he did not just say The Notebook was a good, right? That's what you want to do. I know you're there, right? But we kind of come to the end of these movies and we're inspired and we want to love well, but in reality, they don't really change our lives. I've never come across a Matthew McConaughey movie that changed and impacted my life. I just sort of came to the end of it. I was inspired. I said, baby, I love you. And then I went to sleep. And the next day I was no different, right? But every now and then, right? right and if we're not careful, that's how the Christmas Jesus can operate in our lives. But every now and then, we come across these movies where we cannot passively watch them. The stories that are being told through, the, through film or through books are stories so compelling, we can't just passively watch them. We're actually compelled to get involved, to plug in, to, to, to enter into the story. Films like Hotel Rwanda, you remember when that came out a few years ago, and it kind of graphically illustrates the reality of genocide in our world. And you can't, you can't just watch that movie and then go to Culver's, right? I mean, you, got, you watch that movie, and all of a sudden, all these things start to rise up inside of you, and you're like, how can I get involved? Where is genocide happening? What can I do to help alleviate the pain and the violence? Or, or films like Hotel Rwanda, that tell the, uh, um, sorry, films like Born into brothels that tell the story of children born into the sex slavery. And we're like, is that a reality in our world? What can I do? These films sort of compel us to get involved and to get involved. And what I want to offer to you today is a story that is both inspiring and at the same time, very challenging. And that is the Christian story. Um, the Christian faith at its core is a story of what God is doing and how God is operating in the world. 
Now, chances are a lot of you have been offered a, a, a version of the, Christ, of the Christian story that really isn't very compelling, right? I mean, somebody drug, here, drug you here today. You're not really wanting to be here. You're here to, to, to make a relative be quiet. You, you came here because they showed up at your door and said, I'm not leaving until you come, right? I mean, I don't know why you're here today or what version of the Christian story that you've heard, but I want to offer to you today what I hope to be a more compelling version of the Christian story story because let's be honest sometimes the christian story starts with you know what you're a horrible person and if you're being told that story you're like what i do you know what did i do and so the christian story starts with number one you're a horrible horrendous just awful person and then it goes to this place is also horrible this world is awful and, and, and uh, Christ has come, and if you just put your faith in him, then at the end of your life, you'll be beamed away from this place to live as sort of this disembodied soul in this place up there and out there somewhere called heaven, and it's paradise. And in fact, let me tell you about heaven. This is the, uh, this is the version of the story that you often hear. This paradise is full of us sort of disembodied souls floating around, singing hymns all day, and playing the harp. And if some of you are honest, you'll be like, that sounds like hell to me. Right? I mean, some of you are like, let's just be honest. You, you, you hear that version of the story and you're like, for real? And then the Christian looks at you and says, if you'll just put your faith in Christ, you could be a part of this story. And you're like, no, thank you. I want to offer you today a story that is similar because I don't want to disregard that story, but I just don't think it's quite complete of what the, how compelling and how uh, phenomenal and profound the Christian story is. In fact, um, do you guys remember uh, a couple years ago, Starbucks had these reflections on their cup. They were sort of these kind of philosophical, homegrown philosophy that they would print on their cups. Anybody could submit it, and uh, they would print it on the cup. Do you guys do you remember that? Are you with me? Starbucks fans, unite, okay, right? Um, and so you go to Starbucks, and a couple of years ago, you, you'd get all this philosophical wisdom of people's perspective, and uh, there was one cup that, that really caught uh, my attention. It was from Joel Steen, uh, or Stein, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. He's a reporter for the LA Times. And here's what his homegrown philosophy said. It says this. He said, you know, heaven is really overrated. I mean, it seems boring, right? Clouds, listening to people play the harp. Heaven should be somewhere that you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. <laughs> He says, maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has got to step it up a bit. And they're basically just getting by because they only have to be better than hell. (laughs) Pretty rough stuff, right? And we don't really know what to do with that. We're kind of like, but the other part of us wants to laugh, like, right? And then we come to this this idea, and man, I want to say, man, isn't he... Right, isn't that how many of you feel today? And so I want to offer you today a message that says the life of faith is much more than going to some other existence when you die. It is an invitation that God is calling us to into God's new world here today and forevermore. It's an invitation to enter the story of redemption that God is telling here today 
right now on this planet, on this dirt, with this air, and forevermore. Do you see what I'm doing? I don't want to disregard the future hope of the Christian faith because it is solid and it is there. But I don't want to relegate the hope of Christian faith to just the future. What I want to do today is I want to pull us into the present and begin to talk to you about how the center of that story, the story of redemption that God is telling in the world, at the very center of that narrative is the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ that we're here to celebrate today. And may I also say that the celebration does not just last today. But we do a really good job in the church of recognizing Lent, which begins with Ash Wednesday. And we kind of prepare our hearts for 40 days to celebrate Easter. And we kind of live in this 40-day mode of repentance before God. And then we celebrate for one day and we go back to business as usual. Right? So as we celebrate the, the linchpin, the, the center of the Christian narrative, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, may we not relegate or end the celebration today, but may we go on to celebrate uh, into, the, into the year, into the summer, into Christmas. <laughs> That's what I would argue today, this, this idea of the resurrection being central to the story that God is telling Because this may come as a surprise to you, but I would argue with you that the New Testament rarely, if ever, talks about going to heaven when you die, as we've come to understand it. But what the New Testament does talk about a lot is about inheriting the kingdom of God or what Jesus calls experience the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And what we've done in modern cultures, a lot of times when we hear the words kingdom of heaven, we automatically jump to uh, cloud cars, care bears, heart playing, uh, disembodied souls kind of floating around. But I would argue that's not at all what Jesus is talking about when he says that we can inherit the kingdom or that we can experience the kingdom of God. I would argue that the, the kingdom of God is breaking through right now and it can be experienced for you today. Today is the day that we can begin to experience the kingdom of God in our lives and that reality. But I want to look at that from the framework of this resurrection narrative. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 with me. John chapter 20, I want to read the first um, 18 verses. The first 18 verses. This is, in fact, the Easter account, the Easter morning account that, the, the, that John tells. Um, and uh, we're going to pick out, we're going to read the whole narrative, talk a little bit about it. But then I want to begin to focus in on one detail that John provides. Because in the Gospel of John, you can understand it sort of on the first level. This is what John says, and this is what he means. But in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of, of imagery, illusion, metaphor. And so you can kind of stay at the surface level... Or you can, in the Gospel of John, you can dig dig down one level, dig down another level, and another level, and you begin to see all these sorts of connections that John is making to to the rest of Scripture in the the Gospel narrative. So uh, I want to read this and begin to talk about one of these details that I believe is down a couple of layers of what John is trying to communicate here. But let's read it together. You can follow along on the screen with me. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple and the the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, but we don't know where they have put him. 
So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now he he bent over and looked at the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. And when Simon Peter came along behind him, he went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. Now they they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to raise from the dead. Now, then the disciples went back to uh, where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Well, they have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was, in fact, Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? And then thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to the brothers and tell them, I, ascending to, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of, of history in, in, in a little peek into the ancient world and how the ancient world would have thought about the reality of the resurrection. Because resurrection, as I mentioned early on, is, is a difficult idea for even you and I uh, begin to, 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 to grasp and to understand. And it really calls for us, what are we going to do with the reality of a resurrected Christ. And, and resurrection was, in fact, a belief in the ancient world, but it was sort of this, this loosely held belief uh, because it didn't take modern science for, for folks in the first century to discover that when people die, they're dead, right? They don't come back to life. It doesn't take modern science to figure that out. The experience in the ancient world was this person died, now they're dead. But resurrection, this idea of life after, life after death, then was still talked about. And when it was talked about, they always meant pretty much the same thing. And that was that they understood the resurrection to be this bodily resurrection, as opposed to sort of a spiritual resurrection, that sometimes we begin to to get in modern culture, where we don't really talk about Jesus' bodily resurrection, but we talk about Jesus becoming alive in us. And so it's more of a spiritual resurrection that we are awakened to the reality of Jesus, right? Uh, But what they are affirming, and what I want to affirm this morning, is that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. It was a physical resurrection. This is precisely what they believed in the ancient culture as well. A bodily resurrection that all of us would experience at the very end of time when God remade the world and put everything back to right. Are you with me? This is what the ancient world is thinking about and believing. That is to say that there was an existence right after death, but after that, the ancient culture believed there was a bodily resurrection. And this resurrection was part of or included in God's remaking of the world or redemption of the world from, from the sin that has come in. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, very good. 
So, now we see this clearly in, in actually John's gospel as well, when Jesus, in Jesus' conversation with Martha regarding Lazarus in John chapter 11. Because Lazarus has just passed away, and, and Jesus is trying to comfort Martha, so he says, your brother, your brother will rise again. That his death is not the last word, that he in fact will rise again. And Martha says, yes, I know. He will be resurrected at the end of the age. Again, this reveals the idea that at the end of the age, all, everyone together will be resurrected when God remakes the world. And then Jesus takes that teachable moment and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that anyone who believes in me will experience eternal life. And so we, we get this idea that, that, that this conversation, again, reveals the fact of they, they sort of, they believed in resurrection being way out there. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus does not change this belief in any way throughout the New Testament. The only thing that he does is, the only way that he changes it is that he himself will be resurrected before the end of the age. That he himself will be resurrected three days after his death. In other words, what he offers is that this, this, this brand new, uh, what he offers that is new is that he will be raised before everyone else. And in doing so, he will inaugurate this brand new age that they are anticipating. You're with me? Does that make sense? Now, we see the evidence of, in the Easter stories that the disciples don't really get this, right? They have a really hard time grasping that Jesus' resurrection comes before everyone else's resurrection. Because uh, in, in the Luke account, Luke 24, verse uh, 12, they, it says the disciples didn't understand what was happening. And even in the, the, the resurrection account that we read today, they're like, they must have moved the body of Jesus, right? They're having a hard time grasping the reality that Jesus, in fact, is bodily resurrected in, uh, right now, in time. And so they believe in the resurrection, but it was supposed to happen out there at the end of time. Now, but it inaugurates the fact that Jesus was resurrected before everyone else inaugurates, brings in this brand new world that God is creating, but it's not yet fully realized. And this is why this one example, this one detail that John gives us is critically important. Stay with me. Because in John's, John's story, he says that Mary, churning towards Jesus, thinks that he is the gardener. Which is sort of an ancient way of seeing of saying, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? He thinks, she thinks that he is the gardener. And what John is trying to do is he's bringing back the imagery of the garden in the narrative of the gospel. And when do we think about a garden? The Garden of Eden, right? And so John is saying, they thought that the resurrected Jesus, whom she did not recognize, she thought that he was a gardener. What John is doing is he's pulling us back to the creation account where in Genesis, God creates the whole world with nothing but his word. And he says at the end, and on every step of the creation, he says, and it is 
good. That things are precisely how they are intended to be. That Adam is being, uh, is, is being charged with and held responsible to care for the garden, to tend the garden, to oversee, we could say, steward the creation that God has given him. And then Adam and Eve are together uh, living in perfect harmony with God. This is precisely how things are supposed to be. And so, and, and when we read the Genesis account, we sort of have this tension of the, the world we live in now where we have this feeling, this is not how things are supposed to be. And when we read the Genesis account, we have this kind of inner sense in the deepest part of us, this is precisely how things are supposed to be. Communion with God, caring for creation, everything is good, death and sin are not part of the story yet. And so at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, John points us back to that perfect creation. And he's in essence saying that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it has begun a brand new age in which God is going to redeem the world, to restore the world, and bring us back to the garden to where things are supposed to be. Amen. Are you with me? This is what John is doing. And some of you are looking at me like, what? Right? And remember, we're at the second or third level of, of the imagery of the, that John is using. And some of you are like, man, that's a stretch. I don't think so, because what we see in the ministry of Jesus is what? The pronouncement of the kingdom of God available to us right now. Uh, bursting forth into this very world, this broken world that we live in, is bursting forth the redemption of all things. And we see the evidence of it, but it's not yet fully realized, right? Because we look around and we see this thing is not how it's supposed to be. But with what, what I want you to understand today is that the, the Jesus resurrection is the beginning of God's new creation. Where God's plan and desire is to return us to a world without sin and death. And so in his death, Jesus deals with sin and death. He deals with all the things that do not belong to the new creation. And then in his resurrection, he launches this sort of brand new, new creation project. And it breaks forth into the world in which you live. So what I want to say to you today is that the resurrection is not just this sort of odd event in the world where we look back and we say, oh, isn't it great that the God we serve is alive? It is that. But it is so much more than that. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has implications for the life that you and I live at work, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in all the places where we find ourselves. The resurrection makes all the difference in the world. Because it is the launching pad event of the brand new world that God is making in right here in our midst. And so the story... The narrative that's being told in the world, this Christian story, is the one where God is working in his people and through his people, the church, to put things back the way that they're supposed to be. And I'm sure you've felt it the way that I have felt it. That the way things are now is not the way things are supposed to be. I mean, when, when you and I lose the ones we love to disease, we have the sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And maybe when you yourself experience disease and decay in your body and brokenness, and you, you think this is not 
the way it was supposed to be. When you think those things, may I affirm you, you're right. But may I give you the good news today. God is putting this world back together. And the linchpin event, the inauguration of this brand new world that God is creating is in fact the moment in history when Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, was bodily resurrected on Easter morning. We know that things aren't supposed to be when we hear of all kinds of injustice in the world, the millions of children that are trafficked for sex, when our addictions take grip on our lives and we just seem, can't seem to break them, when our, with our obsession for physical beauty and, and, and all these sorts of, of, of vain things that we concern ourselves a bit. Now, you should look good, but it's when this thing rules in our lives, our lust for things that aren't rightfully ours. And what happens is if we don't begin to firmly grip the reality of the resurrection, we're trying to come to terms with the brokenness in the world, we will only return deeper into the addiction. We will only move deeper into the brokenness if we have not grasped the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll only move deeper into anger, deeper into bitterness, deeper into addiction. But this story, that God is telling. This move that God is doing in our world where he's redeeming all around us. That we see the evidence of lives being restored of, as the song says, chains be broken and lives be healed. This is in fact the evidence and the reality of the kingdom of God. Because for every defeat in the world, there is victory. For every hurt, there is healing. For every addiction, there is freedom. This is the story that God is telling all around us. This is the story of Easter that that invites us and calls us and compels us to enter in. But the reality is, is that so many of us get up in the morning, we go to work, we come home, We watch TV, we go to bed, and we repeat, and we miss the epic story of redemption and renewal and reconciliation and the kingdom of God that God is telling in the story. And so when we come to Easter, when we have to come face to face with the resurrected Christ, it gives us an opportunity to become aware of this grand narrative that God is telling, and it does not just it does not just allow us to sit and say, oh, don't the kids look great in their Easter dresses? It calls us and it compels us and it moves us and it invites us to enter into the story. And let me tell you, let me give you two things that happen when we enter into this story. The first thing is that we ourselves, you, become a new creation. Scripture is very, very clear. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything that is old has passed away, and everything has become new. We saw in the video people struggling and dealing with uh, alcohol addiction, 
pornography addiction. The businessman saying, I can't do this anymore. What about the kids is caught up in, in an affair or tempted away from, away from the commitment and the covenant of marriage? And the reality is, is that you and I face the same junk in our world. And the reality of the story of the kingdom of God is that in Christ, we are made new. That we can overcome these things. I love the, the, the imagery that the video showed of giving these things over to Christ for which Christ died and then was resurrected. In those, all the sin of the world, Jesus took upon himself. And that would have been enough. That would have been a phenomenal gospel if this man named Jesus had just taken the sin of the world upon himself and paid the punishment of that sin. But the story doesn't end there. The story does not end last Friday. The story simply begins today where Jesus not only took on our sin, but was resurrected to defeat death and defeat that sin so that you and I may live in victory. When you enter into this story of the kingdom of God, the scripture is clear that you are a new creation. You are made brand new. And what the Bible is essentially saying is that when we place our faith in Christ, we ourselves become evidence of the new creation that is bursting forth into this world. Our lives begin to demonstrate a new way of life made possible through him who died and was raised. And with the power of Christ in you, it is possible for all the things that drag you down and and hold you down to be lifted up that you may live in victory through Jesus Christ. That reconciliation, that forgiveness happens through him because you are made new. That you become evidence of the new creation. Can I hear an amen? Amen. A quiet church is a dead church, right? And we're far from dead, all right? So you got to participate with me. That through Christ, you can overcome that addiction. Your marriage can be put back together. You can love your kids with a Christ-like love through Christ. Parents, I am a parent too. I know what it's like to be frustrated with a two-year-old. I know what it's like sometimes to love your kids with the love of Christ. When you're like, just sit down and shut up, right? And you're like ready to pull your hair out. I know what that's like. And with Christ in you and you being a new creation, it opens up a whole new realm of possibility in your life to love your kids with a Christ-like love and a God-honoring love at all times. With new creation bursting forth in our world and in your life, it is possible to put the bottle down, to refuse the next hit, and to purify your eyes from all of those images and to be set free from bitterness and anger. Your sin has been paid for through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that comes a shift in, in this this perspective, a shift in priorities of what is important. And when you accept Christ, you make a decision to follow him and be part of the story that God is telling. And then the second thing is that not only are you made into a new creation, but you are then invited to participate in that new creation. That you are, 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 your life is made new, your life is transformed, and then you are sent out 
to go and and share the good news, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of the kingdom of God. That Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And what Paul is essentially saying is that no good work done in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ will be wasted in God's redeemed world. That all of every time that the church and that you and I feed the hungry, every time that we provide friendship and community to someone who is ignored, every time that we give the thirsty a drink, when we give the homeless a place to stay, every time that you and I participate in these good works of faith, they will all be gathered up and taken in into God's new world. None of them wasted. And so that you and I are made new so that we can participate in making things new. Now don't be mistaken. It's not you and I doing the work. It's God doing the work through us. So that this gospel, this resurrected Jesus, makes us brand new. So that we can make others brand new. So that we may go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now I don't know what version of the story you've heard. But I promise you, the Christian story is not about escaping. It is fully about engaging the world in which we live in right now. It is not about losing ourselves. It's about finding ourselves in Christ and in the resurrection, about being fully human, about becoming fully alive in Christ, and that realizing that our lives, our day-to-day lives, yes, your life, bored at work, your life is part of a bigger story, an epic narrative that God is telling. And this morning, he's inviting you to participate, to not sit on the sidelines any longer, to not just sit and watch the Easter Jesus go by, but respond so that your life takes on this inspiration, this motivation, this this purpose, and this meaning. And I'm not telling you that after you accept Christ, you're never going to have a bad day. And I'm not telling you that you're not going to go through some difficult stuff. Jesus never promised to save us from the difficult times. Well, what he did promise is to walk through with us through those difficult times and to see us through the reality of the resurrected Jesus. But in order to enter into this story, we must make a decision. There is a point in which we must accept the reality of this grand narrative, this Christian story, and then respond. We must become obedient to, to the, the, the compelling uh, nature in us that is moving us towards involvement in this story. Some people call it getting saved. Others people call it making a decision for Christ. But whatever you call it, it is a response to the invitation to find yourself in the story of God, in the kingdom of God. It's a story that gives your life direction It's a story that allows you to live well. A story that allows you to put away all that junk that you've been holding, that's been holding your life back, like bitterness and anger and and appetites that are way out of balance. 
And it is a story that compels us to get involved. And so today I simply ask you, what are you going to do with Easter Jesus? Now I want to recognize today that some of you were drug here. Some of you are, are here almost against your will. And, and, or you're, you're here out of obligation to a family member. Or you're here because it's the right thing to do on Easter Sunday. And the reality is, is I want to just make this explicit that for some of you, it, it might feel really awkward to kind of respond to the stirring in your heart that you feel right now. You may feel awkward. You may feel nervous about what will my spouse think? What will my friends think? You may even feel just a little bit out of place. Intimidated maybe. But I want to tell you today that God can do awkward. And that God can do nervous. And that God can do intimidated. And some of you may even be embarrassed how am I going to go to, to work tomorrow morning having made a decision for Christ today? Let me tell you, God can do embarrassed. There is nothing that you may feel today that God isn't saying to you, I can handle that. I can do okay with that. Because God is an all-sufficient God. And he knows precisely where you're at today. And he's inviting you to be a part of the story. And some of you might say, you know what? I don't even know how to move to God. I don't even know how to make that first step. I mean, maybe, maybe I went to church as a little kid and I grew up in the church and, and, and I've got all this baggage about church and what it means to be a Christian. But what you said today really stirs my heart and really pulls me in. But, but the reality is, Pastor, I don't even know what the first move to God is, to which I would say it's okay because at the cross and the resurrection, God has already moved to you. That's the good news of the gospel, that there's nothing that we have to do in order to, to move ourselves to God. He's already moved to us. Our only role is to respond and to say yes to the stirring in our hearts. So for some of you today, for many of you, I believe it is time to stop fooling around. It's time to stop trying to build your own story and instead find yourself caught up in the story that God is telling.